0: It was really the first time that the government stepped into being a sponsor of the arts. And it wasn't just commissioning artworks, but it was hiring artists. It was treating artists as labor workers who needed to be supported, just like any other industrial workforce. The key term for me, uh, talking about the federal art projects was uh,
1: voice for the voiceless. The restaurant business, it it was very intense work.
2: The collective members, I used to like to say we exploited ourselves because we paid ourselves minimum wages.
3: Okay, folks, a special treat on today's Labor Goes to the Movies as we welcome Lincoln Cushing and Harvey Smith to discuss the New Deal for Artists now showing in the D.C. Labor Film Fest. Archivist and historian Lincoln Cushing is the author of All of Us or None, social justice posters of the San Francisco Bay Area, and... Agitate, Educate, Organize, American Labor Posters. Harvey Smith is the author of Berkeley and the New Deal. We have a bonus guest this week as longtime union organizer Carl Goldman drops by to tell us about the brand new film We Made Matzo Balls for the Revolution. All the DC Labor Film Fest films are still available in the AFI Silver's DC Labor Film Fest virtual screening room. Check out the link in the show notes here's the show we'll begin with the trailer for the new deal for artists the artists of the 30s gave a shape a vision a form to the period they bestowed on us the gift of memory i think one of the uh uh, horrors of our society, American society, is this break with the past, a lack of continuity. Young people know nothing of the past, for that matter, even people who live from the past are forgotten.
0: New Deal had this wonderful idea it was better to put them to
3: work even receiving the same amount of money and give them some self-respect that they were earning this money instead of just receiving it as charity. All of the projects put to work skills and talents. Practically without exception, every American artist born between 1900 and 1915 spent his formative years in the arts project.
0: Our committee is the only agency of government that has the power of exposure. Therefore, this investigation must go on.
3: How the arts project died, of course, is part of history, if you know about. The writers and the theater people were constantly under attack. We were accused of being communists. There was undoubtedly congressional pressure against what was seen as extreme left-wing influence in the federal theater. Attacks on the project mounted daily. The doors were open for censorship. We were pretty liberally attacked by the politicians.
0: And there were concerted efforts to uh, try to uh, get rid of uh, this organization. This was the beginning of a, a whole new history in the United States.
3: Welcome to Labor Goes to the Movies, Chris and Elise. Really looking forward to the discussion. We were in the pre-chat talking about Studs Terkel in another context. One of the things I loved about this film is that we got to see Studs Terkel. I get to hear Studs sometimes and read Studs sometimes, but I don't get to see Studs that often. So that was a real treat, but I'm jumping the gun. Elise, any uh, thoughts before we uh, turn things over to Evan to get the ball rolling?
4: I'm, I'm really enjoying this year's Labor Fest. And I I it's this thing about Zoom, right? I was like so like not Zoom two years ago. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But this to be able to have this conversation, to watch the films and be together across, you know, geographical barriers, it's really a wonderful thing. Especially since we love movies.
3: Yes, we do. We love movies. And uh okay. just side note, our home theater is AFI here in Silver Spring, Maryland. And as of tomorrow. It is actually opening for the first time in over a year. Uh, And so that is pretty exciting. I'm still personally a little nervous about sitting in a theater with other folks, but I'm I'm probably going to get ourselves together and do that. But all right, let's get the conversation going. And Evan Papp, again, my co-conspirator on so many things over the last year, although as I keep saying, Evan and I don't live too far from each other, but this Zoom is as close as we got. We still have not met in person. So I owe you so many beers, Evan, not least for putting together uh, today's uh, wonderful panel. So I'm going to hand it over to you to introduce our, our special guests.
5: Thanks, Chris. I'm very excited to discuss one of the greatest programs that has ever been implemented, and it's the New Deal, and we're going to be discussing the 1976 documentary, The New Deal for Artists, which was directed by Wieland Schultz Keel and narrated by the great Orson Welles. And it's a retrospective that interviews famous artists who came of age during this revolutionary period of U.S. government support and sponsorship of artists as part of the New Deal to overcome the Great Depression of the 1930s. So our special guests who are experts on these New Deal programs and who I learned about through the Living New Deal, which is an incredible nonprofit that is mapping tens of thousands of New Deal projects that I encourage everyone to check out to better understand the New Deal legacy in our backyard. But first I wanna begin by introducing Lincoln Cushing. He is an archivist and author who documents, catalogs, and disseminates oppositional political culture of the late 20th century. His books include Revolution, Cuban poster art, visions of peace and justice, political posters from Inkworks Press, and Agitate, Educate, Organize, American Labor posters. And our second special guest is Harvey Smith. He is the author of Berkeley and the New Deal, Images of America. And he is also a contributor to the Living New Deal. So Lincoln is going to start off by presenting a few slides and then we'll hand it over to Harvey and then we'll open it up for everyone to discuss about the the film and and their impressions. So Lincoln,
0: over to you. Okay, I'll share screen. Can you see that okay? Yep. Yep. The, the New Deal was really an important period in, the, in our country because it was really the first time that I, the government stepped into being a sponsor of the arts. And it wasn't just commissioning art works, but it was hiring artists. It was treating artists as labor workers who needed to be supported just like any other industrial workforce. And so this was a fascinating period because what does it mean when the government begins to support things that are for the public in the arts? We've never quite had anything like that except for a brief period of the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act. But my field is visual art, specifically posters. And during the New Deal, this was a time when artists were trained to go out into the communities And there are great examples of theater and music and other, you know, writing. But when I look at this as a visual artist, this is a fantastic period where for many people in this country, it was the first time in their lives that they saw an artist making art and they could walk away with an affordable piece of artwork. Most Americans didn't have an original piece of art in their homes until these programs. And this is such an empowering and democratic feature that sort of liberated a whole slice of artists to say, wait a second, who should support what I do and who should be the beneficiaries of what I do? used to be that artists were supported by the church or by rich people. Government funding for the arts is a transformative step. So let me go and talk about a little bit more. This was, you know, a relatively short period, 1935, 1945, and it was really, you know, the hiring of the artists, the Works Progress Administration, this is a big step in treating artists as labor. The silkscreen unit of the program was created in 39 didn't start off right away. So let's jump to CETA, the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, which was sort of the, you know, the second emancipation of this feature. I was a CETA worker. I got hired to edit and write for a human services magazine in San Diego. This was a boon to arts organizations in the country. And so it was not just helping the workers, it was also providing a whole breath of fresh air for arts creation in the country, just like the earlier program during the 30s, It was in many ways, it was more progressive artists it hired a lot more people that were artists of color, a lot more women, uh, a lot of disadvantaged communities. This is really a step up. And this was because we'd experienced the civil rights movement. We'd experienced other social movements that ratcheted up who the program was serving. But it was really a fantastic step in the right direction. A tiny portion of the entire budget, about 1%, was spent on public arts fundings. And this is 78, 79, but it was just really an important thing. And so you start to look at, you compare these two programs. You know, the Federal Arts Program was really active in promoting the arts and especially printmaking, which for me was an incredible feature. It had been, screen printing, one of the main art forms, was, had been considered a commercial art form. They elevated it to being something that was really popular and artists took it on as a way to teach art. Same thing that was going on with CETA they had artists using new devices, new tools to create the same thing. Again, you compare the two programs. Mostly what they were doing with screen printing was turning it from this commercial thing, you know, cantaloupes, two for a dollar, to making it for, they were supporting other federal arts programs, art showings, workshops, theater, things like that. Well, again, Neighborhood Arts Program was promoting local events. Here's a Gestetner machine, which is a really inexpensive, affordable way to make duplicate copies. This is Jane Norling running one of these machines. And the kinds of programs, it was they talk about labor, the subjects were all over the map. The, the stuff that was produced in the 30s was not very overtly political. It had an undertone of being political, and certainly the program was fundamentally political, but they didn't have images that were fundamentally sort of what we would consider radical. But a lot of the stuff that was produced with, the, with CETA was quite political and was dealing, like I said, specifically with communities of color, with underrepresented communities, disab- disabled community, Indians, Native African-American community. There were a lot of groups that were supported by the CETA programs that may or may not have seen the light of day in the earlier program, but again, it takes social movements to ratchet that stuff all up further. So that's, you know, I'm saying it takes social movements to really elevate this stuff. And again, anything that we see coming forward from now, and again, there's a huge push towards promoting public funding for the arts. It's gonna see stuff that's again, a whole level higher than what we saw in these previous two programs. So I'll leave it at that and turn it back to the host. Thank you.
5: Thanks a lot, Lincoln. Uh, I'm going to pass it to Harvey Smith, if you want to talk a little bit about your work and your book and any other thoughts.
1: Yeah, yeah. I work with the Living New Deal, which is actually trying to document the physical legacy of the New Deal, the, or the architecture, the, the parks, the post offices, et cetera, et cetera, the arts programs, and to some extent, the social programs. And I also work with another organization that does New Deal work, the National New Deal Preservation Association. And we are both, both organizations are also linked to the Francis Perkins Center, another really important resource for information about the New Deal and celebrating the incredible work of Francis Perkins, who we always should thank when we think of social security, think of Francis. Anyway, and so I've done a lot of work around New Deal art and and just, of course, documenting what's here right in my uh, town of Berkeley, as a representative, as a microcosm of what we find throughout the country, because Berkeley might have gotten a little bit more, a little bit less than in other places, but it was certainly typical because the New Deal reached every corner of the country, urban, rural. It reached uh, some places you'd be really surprised to reach. So I was very happy to see this film. There's a similar film that uh, looks more at the artist and, and sort of their views of the program. But I like the overview of, of this film. And I think the, the key term for me uh, talking about the federal art projects was uh, voice for the voiceless. And it also, in terms of the federal writers project, project talked about the importance of social documentary. And I, I think that that's a key thing. And Lincoln mentioned a national program, and they mentioned the attempt to establish a national theater. And that was a project of Hallie Flanagan, who had traveled and was aware of national art programs and national theater in other countries. And again, in this country, we find the the Federal Art Project, the CEDA program is something a little bit out of the ordinary or unusual. But if you think of the National Theater of Britain or the scope of BBC or the Canadian Film Board, you can go on and on. And you can think of many other countries that are far ahead of the U.S. in terms of national support for the arts. So I think it's it's certainly an an important lesson. Unfortunately, as Studs Terkel said, the the Neanderthals took over, and and that's what we're still fighting. I do want to point out that there were two little factual errors in the film. They conflated the reaction to the Koi Tower murals with what happened later, the attack on the federal art projects in the late 30s. And the Quake Tower project was actually not even under the Federal Art Project. It was at the very beginning of the right. New Deal. It was the first major mural project under the Public Works of Art Project. The other thing they, they said was that the uh, FSA was uh, killed, I believe they said 1940, but it was never really killed. It, it continued on and it morphed into the Office of War Information in, in 1942 and continued through the war. Another thing I, I liked about the really, the film is it didn't mention Mexico, Mexican muralists, but only one, Rivera. And I think oh, what I like to point out is that the, art, the, the arts programs of the 1930s owe an incredible debt. To not just Rivera, but the, the other uh, two, Tres Grandes, and other Mexican artists, because they laid the groundwork in the 20s that was later picked up in the 1930s by the U.S. So that's really all I, I've got to say, except to, to say that there's some uh, resources that I think are really interesting related to this, and, and one thing that's coming up to try to bring back some of the, the one aspect of the Federal Art Project. So I did mention Mexican Muralist. There's a wonderful uh, book called Idols Behind Altars that looks at Mexican art, but in three periods uh, pre-contact, colonial, and then the period of the 1930s. And that's by a woman named Anita Brenner, very interesting woman herself. And then the I see Brody Hefner there, his other half and himself, are involved in the Arthur Rostein Legacy Project, and remember Arthur Rostein had it was, it was a couple of times Arthur Rostein appeared in the film. And there's some rec- a couple of re- recent books on the Federal Writers Project. Jerry Mangione was featured, and that was the text at, at the time. But now there's a great book on Henry Alsberg by Susan Damasi, and then a new one that Sue actually told me about the, that's coming out called The Republic of Detours. And there actually will be a talk, the National Archives Museum is going to do a talk on that on June 15th with Susan and the author of that book, Scott Borchert. So those are just some resources that, that I thought of related to the film. And I, I think the one thing I, I would probably want to finish with is, is that the fact that the, what the, one of the key things of the Federal Art Project was It was not a focus or celebration on individuals, but it allowed artists, it lessened the competition between artists, but it also allowed artists to collaborate. So there's really a a value, a very important cultural value that that comes out of supporting artists because they, they are able to work together and create things collectively. So I leave it at that.
5: Thanks, Harvey. And uh, before I turn it over to Elise and Chris and Brody as well, one comment about the error, actually, this New Deal for Artists was actually a four-part series on the cultural politics of the Roosevelt administration. So Mm. there was some editing that was going on, and, and that may be one of the reasons that the error was shown. But I just love the hope and the revolutionary period, but then it crescendos into this reactionary backlash. And having grown up in the Reagan arena for the last 40 years I grew up with very little funding in my public schools for arts and art as valuable in itself I've been chasing for my entire adult life trying to create space for myself to create art outside of my day-to-day job and Elise is very involved with a lot of arts she's done directing singing acting and I'm really looking forward to hearing what Elise has to say about that But one of the things that it opens up with is that the use of the Agricultural Administration to capture the fact that a lot of the farmers that you can read about in John Steinbeck, the Okies going west because of the Dust Bowl, they were suffering and and at that time there's no internet, there's no television and photography and photographs were a way to really capture the suffering and, and connect the rest of America. And so in some ways, art and the images were a way to connect a very fragmented country that was fraying and, and coming apart during the Great Depression that I that I find really beautiful. And, and then some of the comments about people who have never been to an opera or people who've never actually seen live performance acting on a theater stage with classically trained um, artists is, I think, revolutionary as well. And then, of course, there's this tension that they do discuss. If you have a government-sponsored program, it can very easily get into the point where it's like, the artists are going to create these images. This is gonna be propaganda to maintain control of the state. And there was a lot of decentralization going on, depending upon who was managing which program in which region and on which topic, that gave a lot of the artists tremendous leeway to actually produce this art. And the art becomes, I, I think, very meaningful in showing the human spirit of of both the suffering and and the triumph. So those are just some reflections I I wanna share and then open up to Chris and Elise and and Brody and then bring it back to Lincoln and Harvey as well.
4: What's really interesting too is hearing from Lincoln and Harvey, that's like going even deeper. I'm like going, whoa, okay, I wasn't even there thinking about that uh, perspective. But yeah, it was really interesting. I know parts of it, particularly the theater part because that's what I, taught at the National Labor College, it was a labor theater, but the art and the murals. Of course, I'm from Detroit, so I knew about Diego Rivera and that mural and all of it. But this this whole idea that you, you could take people, you could take the art to the people and pay artists. I certainly never thought of theater as a livelihood for myself. I, I couldn't conceive of going to broadway because i figured i'd either be playing somebody's mama or somebody's whore. and so that was the only parts available to black women at that time but that's not, it wasn't even concept to, to earn money from so that workers worker artists were working with government subsidy to create all this visual art and as well as spoken word uh and theater art is was i think they i did they say that it came out of the midwest and we did, didn't, didn't the narrator at some point say it was like born in, I can't remember now, Iowa <laughs> or something, no, no, North, South Dakota, they said it was, I can't, I, I, you, do you remember this part, it was right in the beginning? Am I just making this up?
3: The FSA stuff, I think, was, right, Evan?
4: Yeah, I think
5: that's where, like, at least uh, the editing kind of focused on that at the beginning, and I don't know if yeah. Aaron or Harvey have more info on that, but I believe that's what it said
4: the socialist heart in the Midwest, and you think about that same part of the country today, and I think about going through the Reagan era, where, you know, really where they started putting out heavy propaganda again about the government was the enemy of the people, that the government was doing all these things. Nobody knows the story. The majority of people in labor movement don't know this story, much less the general population. And so there was that part of me that Felt like I was in a classroom. I was learning a lot of really amazing stuff and knowing so parts of it, but thinking about how it applies to today and how there's none, no funding really in this in this respect. And thank goodness for Lincoln and for Harvey and all the other people who are preserving this, because otherwise it'd just be lost.
3: Uh, in time, and it's interesting because you know uh, in normal times we'll do labor walks in DC, and part of that has been refinding the WPAR in the public buildings. But one of the problems is, and you, you saw some of this. Some of it is gone, and some of it is still there. But a lot of these federal buildings of post 9-11 are, you know, limited to employees only. Or if you can get special permission and jump through a lot of hoops and get access, Interior has some amazing WPA art. Most, frankly, most of the federal buildings have WPA art in them. I
4: didn't know that.
3: Oh, yeah. But most of them, like the EPA building has it. Uh, Social Security building has it. Some of them we've been able to get access to. Uh, frankly, oftentimes that's because there are unions in those buildings and, and the unions get us in. Harvey, you're showing us something, but you, Harvey, we're, we have to use your words because I can't read it.
1: <laughs> okay. What it is, it the Living New Deal uh, has done three uh, actual physical maps beyond the website. And the latest one is a uh, guide, to the New Deal in Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, Thanks. and underscoring the point that D.C. is largely a New Deal city. And, and it's an incredible map. It, it, it folds out. So you, you can find information about it on the Living New Deal website.
3: Excellent, excellent. We'll have to do some more of those. But I think to Elise's point, a lot of this and, and a lot of like the, doing these tours and what I kept thinking about in watching the film is that a lot of times this is about us rediscovering our own history and then you wind up thinking about well why is it that we and we I mean workers why is it that workers don't know our own history and why do we not know our own history of struggle for example and I don't want to I don't want to get too paranoid a to conspiracy theory about it but it seems to me that it is useful to people in power that workers not be aware uh, that there's a history of struggle. I don't think that's a coincidence. We have lots of monuments of white people on horses in this town, in every town across the country, for example. We have lots of war memorials. Those are the things that are easy to find, but we don't have so many memorials to people's struggles, for example.
4: Yeah,
5: Lincoln, do you have uh, some impressions you want to share as well? Yeah, this is
0: great. We should sit down and have a beer and do this again. So a couple of things came up. One is the idea that, you know, as Elise pointed out, certainly Reagan em- embodied the real trend towards promoting the idea that big government is bad government. We need to dismantle government, that it's a waste of money, that the free market will take care of everything. And I don't share that opinion. And so I just look at other places where, well, let's look at examples where there is state funding for the arts. I, I traveled a lot to Cuba. I did a lot of work with Cuban artists, in, in especially with posters. And it was the closest I could find to going to a place where it reminded me of what it would have been like to be you know, in the United States in the 30s watching these artists working. These guys are like deliriously happy saying, I got to make art. I got to go to a job and make art about recycle your glass and support South Africa and this was like, for them, this was a, a glorious period where they were actually supported to make art that served the public good. And they, it was a regular job with benefits. And so they were they were thrilled. Now, of course, the government or whatever, whoever your agency is, there's always the artist client tensions, just like you have if you're working for Coca-Cola or for Labor Heritage or whatever. There's, art, there's always artistic tensions. But the idea that government funding for the arts instantly guts it and makes it pointless is just wrong because you, there's plenty of examples out there where government support for the arts leads to a blossoming of, of points of view within the community. And then the other thing that sort of comes up here is you look at great programs like you know, federal arts program and what killed it? Anti-communism is this con- really an enormous thread And one way that I explain this is, I say, if you were to do an an exhibition of political posters made in the United States, progressive political posters, made between 1945 and 1965, you'd have trouble filling a room. Now, 65, rock music and other things broke the ice, but you look at the free speech movement, right? In Berkeley. I live in Berkeley, 1964, this enormous bastion of progressive spirit it had the free speech movement, had theater and poetry and dance, not a single poster. You know, what was chilling was all the government had shifted its support towards abstract art. The government, it wasn't just that, oh, they stopped funding these things. They actually deliberately were sponsoring art that led people away from social realism, from direct community participation, this is, and I'm not dissing abstract art, abstract art plays an important role, but our government was deliberately promoting that kind of art as opposed to the kinds of art that we're talking about. It wasn't a mistake, it was government policies that did this. So these are the kinds of things we need to learn, and the pushback has to come not from the government, it has to come from social movements, it has to come from organizers, from labor saying, wait a second, we don't want to do it that way, we want to do it this way. So those are just some thoughts.
5: And are you referring to the Congress on Cultural Freedom where we were exporting like the Jackson Pollocks and- uh, yeah. And ad- there
0: are several, you know, the, the author Hemingway has a whole tr- treatise on how we were shifting and the role that abstract art played in getting people to start thinking different ways about what art does. But it was government funded art. It was just a different kind of government funded art. I'm,
5: I'm about to hand it to Harvey and then Chris is gonna hand it off as well. And the idea of the House Un-American Activities Committee, I always you know, think about Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s, but this was a problem in the late 30s and just kept going all the way through until it was finally disbanded in the 70s. Absolutely. Can, can I
3: just say that guy, Martin what, dies, dies. dies. Oh, that guy, I was having PTSD flashbacks because I swear to God, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but could you not plop him down in, in, in Congress today? He'd be perfectly comfortable, right? Seriously, I, I realized, oh my God, I thought these were unique nutballs that we have now. No, they've been around a long, long time, which I don't know. If it, I, I thought, I think it's a bad thing. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I was having a little bit of a moment there. Anyway, Harvey.
1: Yeah, uh, the one thing I, I want to point out before I forget is there's actually an effort to bring back the Writer's Project. The, uh, a guy named David Kippen, who runs a really unique program in Los Angeles, and a writer, and he's written introductions to recent editions of the California and Northern and Southern California Federal Writers Projects books. But he is somehow impressed his congressman, uh, Ted Liu. and he's Ted Lieu is uh, hooked up with uh, Teresa LeGere Fernandez, and they're sponsoring what they call the 21st Century Federal Writers Project Act. If you Google that, you'll find information about it. And uh, of course, they're trying to get other people, other people in Congress to sign on to it. You can create pressure by writing your congressperson and uh, getting them to uh, sign on. Yeah, the I think the suppression of history is it's very deep. You can trace the roots of the New Deal all the way back to the Farmers Alliance, which uh, surprisingly took place in places that now are hotbeds of conservatism. But it, it was throughout the country. They got people elected. It eventually died out. But then we got the progressive Era and Teddy Roosevelt. And in terms of domestic policy, FDR was actually following some of the unfinished business of Teddy. All this is pushed to the wayside. And I think Stud said it in the film. If not, I've seen, heard him say it before about what an ahistorical Society, we are. And he's made that point. Uh, Did did he make it in the film? I I think he did. No, but
3: but he talked about the Neanderthals, which is why I was having the flashback because I was was like, they're they're back.
1: Yeah. In my slideshows, I often quote Studs on that issue of having what he calls historical amnesia. And, and, it, and you're right, it's purposeful. If, if we really understood our roots, we would probably, a good swath of the population might be going in, in a different direction. But that information is kept from us. And the arts programs help to stir it up a little bit. And I think that's another reason why arts funding becomes controversial. It should not be but it becomes that because I think artists are aware. I, when there was a lot of that subversive element in the New Deal, and, and it, it pops up in places. I think a way, one thing this comes to mind here in Berkeley, we have a building called the Community Theater that has a, a large relief on it. And this European American sculptor actually in this large relief showing people dancing and in, in the arts and doing theater. There, there are African American f- features in. In those figures, which at that time you didn't see a lot of that, but the, this artist made a point of putting that in into his mural. Arts, it can be subtle, and it can be overt, but it's important, I think, for the, to have that that richness of expression, and to help us as as a society.
3: Before I bring Carl and Elise, I, I saw. I, I think you probably have a bunch of things do you want to you want to just respond before I bring Carl in?
4: Oh gosh, golly! One thing I think. One thing. Lincoln for dropping a dime on me about the and the art, the artistic element of that, but also what you said in terms of the abstract art, I had never heard that before, never. And I think Harvey, that you know, where, where I I totally agree, and that's what we're saying is that this is it's not without malice and forethought that they've cut the arts out. It's not it's not a coincidence that most people are taking their artistic experience from already produced things. It's online, it's already. And I was thinking about when the Poor People's Campaign in, in, in 2019, was it? I think, or 2018, when they, had the, when they came to DC. But I, I went to a, a program where they were teaching the songs and they also had the component of creating the posters. And people, the artists were there together, collectively working together to create posters for this march that we were gonna have. And I I just remember just feeling all thrilled to bits that this was all happening and the photographers were over here. and And it's like, where does it happen? Where does that happen now? Who's working collaboratively in that way so, that the visual, the spoken word, and the musical are happening and creating sculpture, but not to, not to mention murals. Where is that happening? I would
3: suggest that things like you, a lot of that I think is migrated over into social media. I hate, I, mean, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I, 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 I don't, and I'm not going to say it's good or bad. I just think a lot of that creativity, a lot of those tools of production have been put into people's hands. And it's, it is part of this, but I, I want to just take a, a moment to bring Carl Goldman in. I was talking to, to Lincoln when we were getting set up. Lincoln and Harvey are in the Republic of People's Republic of Berkeley. My mm-hmm. my hometown, by the way, is born there at 60. But uh, Carl and I live in the People's Republic of Tacoma Park. Carl's just a few blocks from me. Carl's a longtime organizer. He's retired from AFSCME. He's retired, but he's still busy as hell. Uh, very active in DSA, but he's also apparently now a movie star. He's in a <laughs> film that is out now. It's a very good film. It has a great title and it's only fifty minutes long and it's showing in the Jewish Film Festival. And I asked Carl to come on and talk about it because everybody should see this film. And I didn't even know about the subject of the film. So Carl
2: Yeah I hate to correct my good friend Chris, but I actually <laughs> live in East Silver Spring. I'm three houses outside of Tacoma Park. Oh,
3: oh you're
2: or I you're gotta okay. go renew my visa. Now yeah I'm also a sloppy reader so Chris sent me an email I had sent him some publicity about the film for for Union Cities, and he sent me an email. And had this tendency of only reading half of a sentence, and I <laughs> thought he was inviting me on this just like to watch. No, no, I was going to be a participant. There's so. no
3: watching. There's no watching. It's all okay. participation. Well, if it's me and Elise, it's all participation. I should have known. Tell him the title of this great
2: film. The film is We Made Matzo Balls for the Revolution. And who doesn't want to see that movie? It's a great title, and it, it's about a worker self-managed kosher restaurant that was in the basement of the high-rise apartments in White Oak, Maryland, that have been in the news lately for all kinds of landlord-tenant violations. It it, it existed, I think, between 1975 and 1977, and I got in at the tail end. I had already um, been through two unsuccessful organizing drives as a cab driver. And I was having trouble keeping a job, and a friend of mine told me, "Hey, there's this is a cool place you could work. It's workers self manage and there are a lot of nice people there." So I got I got involved in it, and the idea was to do like progressive organizing, progressive organizing in the Jewish community. And the only the logic was the only way to do that was to, to make the uh, restaurant kosher, so everyone could come. There, the things that that I was there's a whole issue of collecting. Collectively run restaurants and our businesses and worker self-managed business. I was interested in some of the what. I was some of the organizing that was done, and it was basically programming on issues on a number of labor struggles that were going on then. They had speakers about the United Farm Workers. They had posters up. Some of them, some of the we had a wide variety of customers politically, and some of them didn't like the posters. We had a couple speakers on the Washington Post pressman strike, which was one of the like. One of the most important struggle, labor struggles in DC in the 70s. And I fact that the president of the local, Jimmy Dugan, spoke, plus some other people. And even after I left, I came back, because I only was actually there for a few months. I came back as a customer for the music on Saturday nights and for the speakers. And in some ways, it was like the restaurant business. It was, it was very intense work. The collective members, I used to like to say, we exploited ourselves because we paid ourselves minimum wages. And sometime before I got there, they voted. To, to not to put the tips back into the, in, into the enterprise. And I, I told them I disagreed with that because if you're trying to present this as an alternative for workers and they're gonna ask you how much you pay and I'm gonna say minimum wage and they, you might do go on tips. I said, no, we don't keep them. It didn't seem like much of a, what, what's interesting is the, the Tacoma Park Silver Spring food co-op operated at first as a, as a worker co-op. And at the time, they made a point of paying themselves and giving benefits that were equivalent to the unionized grocery stores. And now that they are, for many years now, they've been, it's more of a, it's a consumer co-op, but they're unionized. And I think they have a pretty decent working conditions, comparatively speaking.
3: It's a very cool film. And it's just, it's another example of what we're talking about here, because I've lived here in Tacoma Park for 22 years and I had never... Now, this was something that was in the 70s, as Carl said, it was just around for a couple of years. But interestingly, it seems like a lot of the people that were involved in, and it wasn't a a nonprofit, uh, by the way, it was an anti-profit outfit, which is, and it was a very intentional and clear distinction to be anti-profit.
2: Uh-huh. Yes, it, it, it made for very interesting <laughs> conversations with customers. They say, anti-profit, What's, why don't you call yourself nonprofit? non-profit? well, because we hate capitalism. And an interesting thing about it, I, I just, I hadn't, I've seen other cuts of the film, but one of the reasons I'm late is I wanted to watch it again. <laughs> so, so I remember what was in the film. And I noticed that there are four people in who appear in the film who are DSA comrades from around the country. And so many people have gone off and, you know, all different directions. So I can't say that's true for everyone. But, and one of them is a, an ask me, sh- or maybe you he think he's retired, but he's an ask me shop or was an ask me shop steward in Chicago working for the city.
3: So just connecting back to the WPA, one of the things I noticed in the WPA film was that a number of people ran the the, the names of the folks who either got their start as artists in WPA or who already were artists, but obviously were having a tough time during the depression. And these little checks kept food on the table in hard times, which again, I just really found myself relating after the year that we've just come through. Mm -hmm. That really resonated for me. So I guess I just wanted to throw that around to everybody and, and see, get your thoughts on that. Because I just, it really felt like those times and these times Maybe that's always true, but it felt more true than ever. But Lincoln, do you want to jump in on that?
0: Yeah, it's, Chris, you said earlier, you raised the question, where is the public art now? I see a lot of it. Certainly post-George Floyd, people, artists are painting whole streets. There's a lot going on, and the arts are always part of social movements. It's just, there's a hunger for this. You talk about putting food on the table. There's feeding your soul and feeding your head. And my example I use is during the 2011 Occupy movements, I was down helping a friend do some screen printing in downtown Oakland and the line for people to get a poster was longer than the line for people to get food. Wow. So people really want this stuff. This is not, it's not optional. People need culture. And when it's not supported, it's really struggling. It's really the only way to make a living as an artist these days is either to teach or to starve. I mean, there's just few people sell their art in a way that supports it. It's just really hard. The COVID stuck a knife in the arts and, and it's just they're all struggling, but especially performing arts. Oh my God. So we've got to bounce back, but we don't want to bounce back to the old normal. We need to do better. And that's why I, I'm so excited about efforts to say, look, We've got a new administration, we've got hope. I think there's a chance to say, let's see public funding for the arts. That's gonna elevate this way beyond anything we've seen before. I'm frankly very hopeful that it's gonna be more than just pixels on a screen. It's gonna be open theaters. It's gonna be performances. It's gonna be street murals. It's gonna be a lot of stuff that we can't even visualize right now cause that new generation was taking on the oil pipelines and legacy discrimination. There's arts happening. It's just, how are they going to be let loose? And we've got to support that.
1: Yeah, there's actually a, a lot of things that could be done too. I was actually surprised to find out recently that the state of California does not have a percent for art program, meaning that when construction is done, there's uh, you know, roughly 1% is dedicated to public art. And there are 23 other states and many cities that have percent for art programs. So just m- making that a, a policy throughout the country would do a lot to support artists. The other side of, of this, I think it, it's important to look at having resources because a lot of times the argument from the right or you know, the even liberals is that, oh, we don't have the money. Why don't we have the money? And we have to look at the fact that we we won't go back to the New Deal, we'll go back to the Gilded Age because the gap in wealth right now is like it was during the Gilded Age. So we have all this wealth in this country, but it's not trickling down. And how can, in the richest country in the history of the planet, And here we are in the Bay Area, or you could probably say DC too, in in the richest areas of the richest country, do we have people living in tents on the street? What's wrong with this picture? So this should not be happening. And so there's plenty of resources in this country to support the arts, to put people to work, to support public housing. Just look at the decline every year in the federal housing budget. And so we, we need to deal with all these things because in order to really achieve... Uh, social equity, and for everybody to feel included, there's got to be support in the key, four key areas that FDR outlined. Employment, housing, education, and healthcare. And uh, the New Deal worked in all those areas and established federal policy in every area except healthcare. And we're still tinkering with that. So I think that's a way to for us to get there. And certainly the arts is part of that. It, it's got to be part of that.
4: Oh gosh, I, I was just thinking about government funding of the arts and the the conflict that was presented in the film and that we also talked about. Is like. The government's giving you the money. Isn't this now taking chickens, taking chicken feed from Colonel Sanders? I don't know. I don't know what the metaphor is. But I, I just had that, that thought again in my mind about, ooh, then what's the alternative? It's provide living so people don't have to take money from the government. Then where, that, where does that money come from? Just talking about selling art. How do you sell your art? How do you fund a theater without charging incredible prices so that you can pay actors' equity fees? so you can have union actors in the play. It's a contradiction, it is.
5: Yeah, and I had the privilege to speak with June Hopkins, who is the granddaughter of Harry Hopkins, who's one of my heroes of bureaucrats who've ever existed as a policy nerd.
3: We have to tell people who Harry was, not everybody. Yeah, Harry
5: Hopkins ran the Works Progress Administration. He helped put millions of people back to work who were on the edge of annihilation. And the concept of a government job is, for some reason, still controversial, even though you're always going to have unemployment in a free market. There's always going to be slack in employment. So who does that benefit the most? It it benefits those who want to drive down wages. So a a government-guaranteed job also provides training, provides dignity of uh, spirit, and you can do, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this country. If you've been noticing, there's things falling apart everywhere, and a lot of it was built during the new deal and we've been asset stripping it ever since and i want to get in just one more point on the the documentary the federal writers projects where they talk about these 50 guidebooks of each state that provides the history of these states and just talking about the history was being controversial in, in some of these areas and i think we even need to be looking at how is our public education being determined because we need to make sure that the children are getting art because all of the kids coming up deserve art. They deserve theater. Theater should be a part of the curriculum, as should music, as should writing, as should history. And and we need to make sure that the the next generations coming up are given this, and then they'll value it. And that will help carry the flame forward.
3: I wanted to end with Elise because I was really appreciative. She is the co-host of the podcast, but she's really busy with the annual Great Labor Arts Exchange, which is coming up very soon. Elise?
4: June uh, 17th through the 20th.
3: yeah yeah. online
4: coming to a zoom room near you last year we did it for the first time and we were just like oh how's this gonna work and it worked beautifully we had more people than we've ever had except we had a coral convergence and we think the same thing will happen this year and people from all of the united states and canada and mexico tuned in and so this year, we're we actually expanding the workshop. We got Huck and kind of Packy coming in doing a cartooning workshop. Chris Garlock is going to do one on Labor Podcasts. You say Barnwell is going to be here singing with us. And the, the Saturday, we, we turn it over to the next generation of the Great Labor Arts Exchange. people under the age of 35 who've been coming to us and say, hey, y'all got Saturday, you do the workshops, you do the plenaries, you put it together. So they're doing it. And it's going to happen and we're going to have a great mix. So you can go to, you know, www.laborheritage.org and scroll down to the registration line. It's a sliding scale fee, $5 to, to 100 whatever you can afford to give
0: and join us. Oh, Let me again. throw one last thing in, which is this country does not have a national library. The Library of Congress's job is to serve Congress. It's not to serve the American public. Mm. Most other countries have a national library. We don't. Just one more example of how we have avoided public stewardship of important stuff. And when you go to the documentation of this, of the period of the 30s, a lot of the posters that were produced during this period are lost. We've got a fraction of them. The Library of Congress has some, they have, there's a lot of controversy as to how many were produced, how many were made locally, but we have a fraction of that stuff documented. And that's just the posters. Not to mention the things that are harder to capture, like theater and so forth. The documentation is really important if we really want to ramp this up to be able to do it better each time the circle comes around. So we're grabbing the ring. Hopefully this time we're going to make it better and we're just going to keep going.
3: All right, good place to end, Lincoln. Thank you, thank you, Lincoln. Thank you, you, Harvey Smith, Evan Pap. Thank you for putting this together, Carl, our our newly newly minted uh, Silver Spring movie star. So uh, check that out.
4: Yeah, ours. We claim him.
3: (laughs) It is ours. The Labor Film Fest films are up to June sixth, so people can still check them out. Most of them are are just five dollars. Elise, my sister. Great to see you as well. And thank uh, you, Chris, my brother. Can't, can't wait to see the Great Labor Arts Exchange coming soon to a screen near you. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night.
0: Okay. Thanks, thanks a lot.
4: Thanks, thanks family. Mwah.
3: Thanks for listening to this edition of Labor Goes to the Movies. We'll be taking a bit of a break, but don't miss the upcoming Great Labor Arts Exchange. We've got a link in the show notes. And be sure to like and share Labor Goes to the Movies. As always, thanks for listening. See you at the Labor Movies.